0: to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Abu Abubakar Nur Khalil, a contributor to Bitcoin Core and co-founder of Kala, a nonprofit focused on training the next generation of Bitcoin and Lightning developers in Africa. He's also the CEO of Recursive Capital, a venture fund focused on funding the startups that are building out the Bitcoin ecosystem in Africa. Finally, Abu Abubakar was also selected as a founding member of Btrust, a nonprofit funded by Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z with the stated purpose of funding the people and initiatives which serve to further decentralize Bitcoin development. Though still fairly young, Abu Bakr has accomplished a lot already in the Bitcoin space, owing to the curiosity, dedication, and humility with which he approaches his work and which he details in this discussion. Enjoy. And there we go. Abu Bakr, welcome to Closing the Loop. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you as well. So we met and the last time we hung out was actually at the CT retreat in Northern Norway. Uh, Spectacular environment, amazing group of people. You know, we didn't do much, but hike and, and eat and, you know, do a couple of little workshops. But, you know, when you get a bunch of Bitcoiners together in a room and also notably a bunch of, you know, really great, um human rights activists they made for a very special occasion and you know we got the chance to hang out and chat a bit there and i thought um it'd be great to get you on here discuss a little bit about your story what you're up to and you know what's happening in africa more broadly as it regards to bitcoin and just have a chat so um i'm looking forward to it perhaps maybe to get started we can just uh you can introduce yourself a little bit to everybody who's listening
1: yeah sure definitely i'm looking
0: forward to the combo as well I'm Abu Bakr. I'm a
1: Bitcoin Core contributor. I'm also CEO and CTO of Recursive Capital, which is a Bitcoin VC. I'm also a board member of B Trust. And I'm also one of the founders and organizers of a program called Gala, which basically is trying to increase the number of Bitcoin enlightened developers in Africa.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was quick, but that's a lot. And I wanna <laughs> dig into a bunch of that. But do you mind if I ask? I don't know if, if we if I asked you this when we were in Norway, but how old are you? And you don't have to share if it's forever, whatever, it's (laughs) too private, you know? No, it's okay. I'm 23. 23. And you started, uh, you know, getting involved in contributing to Bitcoin Core when? In 2018, 19? 17. Wow. So you, I mean, how does a teenager get involved in something that most of us would consider like quite exclusive in terms of the capabilities required to contribute to a project like that?
1: Oh, I mean, personally speaking at the time was really primarily curiosity because at the time I hadn't seen anything like Bitcoin, to be honest, and the whole space was really wild and I had no technical background. So I fell deep into the whole FUD around No technical background at all?
0: You didn't study like
1: software engineering or anything? None at all. I haven't been to university. So it's been just the whole rabbit hole journey from 17, 18 nineteen all the way to twenty twenty when we launched recursive and I started doing a lot more contributions with Bitcoin Core. But it's been it's been a journey that I think has been predicated primarily on curiosity and then down the line realizing the real implications of the technology itself, which is Bitcoin.
0: What was it that made you curious about Bitcoin and then Bitcoin Core even advance of becoming like what is now probably like a full-blown psychopathic Bitcoiner, as we're often (laughs) described.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely
0: slow. I didn't expect
1: I would be this involved. I mean, thinking back 2017, reading a bunch of articles, I didn't understand. I didn't think obviously I'd end up being a developer or being actively involved in the space. But initially the curiosity was primarily due to, you know, the whole idea around financial freedom. And really providing a more efficient monetary system. At the time I had no knowledge about like, you know, economics or, you know, how money works or the history of money, or even frankly, what the Nara was, to be honest. So it kind of coincided with a lot of philosophical, I guess, readings and trying to understand how things work in the world. And then down the line, realizing that, hey, like it's actually an open piece of software that you could contribute to. And that was kind of in twenty nineteen onwards when I started doing a lot of that. And then Beyond that, it was realizing, wait a minute, if I can do it, then certainly a lot more people that are way smarter than me could do it as well. So hence why the, I guess, the push to try and get as much people involved as possible that are skilled as well, because we need a lot more people building and protecting this network.
0: Totally. And we'll we'll come back to those efforts in, in a little bit. But I mean, you're a high school student. You know, a lot of us, when we go through the, the journey of, you know, we're, we're confronted with Bitcoin, it's foreign, we don't know, we don't know what framework to place it in, you know, it's, it's so foreign. And so we're like, okay, what is the context that we need to understand this thing? And then you start learning about economics and monetary history and how the, the financial and, and monetary system works in your particular jurisdiction and in the world more broadly. And then it starts to become more clear why this thing is both interesting valuable and potentially world changing. And as you say, that's like often a progression. How did that affect the, when you started learning about Bitcoin, number one, were any of your like classmates or anything with you in that kind of curiosity? But two, (laughs) when you started learning about Bitcoin, how did that influence your perception of the monetary paradigm that you were living in, in Nigeria with the Naira and all the different kind of financial oppression that was Presumably occurring there because it's basically occurring everywhere in the world, just in varying degrees.
1: Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, so just for some more context, in 2017, that was about a year after I graduated high school. So really, the goal was to get into architecture. You know, a couple of my other friends were getting into similar fields, you know, um, I think civil engineering and the likes. But really, it was a solo journey at the time. So I went in deep. Because in all honesty the the gap here between you know 16 and 17 2017 was really a time for me to reflect and really dig deep and find out whether i really want to be an architect or i'm just doing it because people say you know you should so for me bitcoin was i guess part of the primary i guess drivers and trying to really discover and redefine myself and trying to chart a different course like one that really aligns with what i want to do and for me, I think when it comes to the, rea- the reality in general about like the monetary system and all that, funny enough, I actually had no bank account at the time. I only recently got a bank account uh, last year due to, you know, Bitcoin Miami. It's part of the requirements to, I think, pay a fee or something like that. So the whole time between 2017... Um, <laughs> <ironic>. <laughs> yeah, how ironic. <laughs> from <laughs> 2017, I mean, it's not their fault. It's the US visa process in Nigeria. Sure, sure. So from 2017 to 20, um 2021, it's all been banking on Bitcoin. So I've been fortunate enough to get the best case scenario of what a monetary system could be. And then the moment I got a bank account, I realized how cruddy the whole system is and how inefficient (laughs) everything is. So I was like, wow, we definitely need to build. (laughs) There's a lot to build. So for me, realizing that and feeling what the promise holds firsthand, even though the UX was clunky, even as a dev like this, Spending a lot of time on your laptop, multiple devices, encrypting stuff, sharding things—it's kind of all cryptic and all. But I think the space has really, really evolved to a point where it's a lot more convenient than when we got in early on in like 2017. So for me, that's kind of what the major paradigm shift has been: just realizing that hope and that possibility of a future that is possible and already exists. We just need to push it to a state where it's able to handle on additional capacity from billions of users.
0: Totally. Was there any sense of frustration or anything like that when, when you realized how the financial system works? So I'll, I'll share with you some of my story. I was, I was a gold bug prior to being involved in Bitcoin. So I, I had already had um, all those kind of critiques of the monetary system by the time you know my attention came upon Bitcoin. But in the process of becoming a gold bug, that's when I learned about the monetary system. And I, I considered it a profound injustice uh, being exerted on the world. And, you know, at the time, the only thing you could do was become a gold bug, gold bug and it was like a depressing sort of stance to take because the thesis <laughs> told is like everything's going to like crumble and it's going to be Mad Max Armageddon scenario and at least you'll have some gold to go buy some bread. And it's like, <laughs> really? is like, well, I mean, what else are you going to do? And then Bitcoin comes around, along and as you said, it's like a, it's a way more hopeful solution to such a huge problem. Um and hence, you know, why so much energy is being put behind it and why we're also fascinated by it. But when you, when that f- realization first dawned, because you grow up in the world and you just accept reality for what it is, right? In many cases, like, Oh, I grew up in a certain family, city, country. These are the things I'm told are true. And I just accept it and get on with my life. And then you realize that, no, actually some of those things, one, don't have to be that way. They can be different. And two, they probably should be different because then you begin to understand how they came to be as they are. And in many cases you say, wow, that's not fair. That's not just, that's not right. It should and can be different. And so I'm just wondering when when that realization started to dawn on you that like the world that you had previously just accepted as is was not maybe as just or, or as it should be, what was that process kind of like psychologically or emotionally for you? What was that like? Yeah,
1: that's fairly very interesting. I mean, early on, I'd say, like, I'd break it down into three phases. So, the first phase for me was purely philosophical. So, it was, okay, what the hell is a computer to begin with? <laughs> way, <laughs> way, way down that rabbit <laughs> way
0: hole. Right down the beginning, yeah. From
1: the, From the CS point of view, and then gradually building up all the way to, you know, how programming languages work. And then, in the middle, like, the second phase, I'd say, would be doing a lot more reading and a lot more late night combos with my older bro, because he's an economics major. So he's been really really active with regards to, you know, heterodox economics and, you know, modern money theory and all that. So I was really trying to pick his brain to find out what I can about how the world works, things that I assumed worked the way they did, happened not to. And I think the third phase would be around 2019, 2020, was when I really realized that Wait a minute. A lot of these things, I think a lot of people, especially when it comes to not only not even politics, but economics in general. Like you said, there's a general apathy when it comes to how the systems that exist work. And for a lot of people, it's it's easier to work within the existing paradigm than it is to reimagine something or even put your weight behind something as an alternative per se. So for me it was really a huge awakening to find out that there are thousands of people around the world from multiple parts, multiple walks of life, trying to solve a fundamental problem, which is you know money. Money, I think, is probably the most global or the most relatable problem on a global scale, really, because there isn't any region in the world that doesn't have or understand the issues related to money or has some sort of history with regards to that. So for me, it was really realizing that, wait a minute, all this time thinking you know, the world is OK, maybe you could do a bit better. And here is Bitcoin, which is providing a a total top down, should I say, bottom up redesign of how we should communicate financially between ourselves globally, cheaply, and using an open monetary network and and standard that people could tweak and, and, you know, come to consensus with regards to how it should work as opposed to how things currently work. So I I say those three phases combined together provided like a, a real holistic approach for me when it comes to trying to Number one, iron out the issues with the existing systems. And then number two, trying to work within the system to see how we could push it closer to that new paradigm. And then lastly, working within that new paradigm to ensure that people are able to easily use it and use it without prejudice. Because again, Bitcoin is pointless if it inherits all the discrimination and prejudices in in the current systems that we have. So I think that's really how I'd say the journey has been for me philosophically and like in general.
0: So it was kind of, it sounds like it was a, technical curiosity in advance of being a philosophical or economic one. And then, you know, those necessarily followed in that case. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to overdo the question here, but I'm curious, like, what about what it represented technically, coming from a perspective that was non-technical at the time, yours, what was it about simply the technology that piqued your interest in advance of noticing what problem it was solving?
1: Hmm. I'd say initially for me, it was, Because at the time, again, you know, I was quite heavy into Ethereum to a certain extent because of all the, I guess, naivety at the time. So for me, it was really fascinating, the whole idea of like timestamping, even having like a, a chain of blocks and all of that and having a P2P network. So for me, it was really how the entire thing worked as a whole, as opposed to specifically just a blockchain or maybe just the network itself. And then gradually it snowballed into, hmm with the way it currently works this thing actually provides a, a really really efficient method for a lot of problems that we see monetarily speaking and it's able to do so with a lot of intricate plumbing that you could tell from like a design point of view a, a lot of trade offs were i guess considered very very carefully from picking you know um how blocks are issued you know the the, the actual um, emissions themselves and and all of that, and even how nodes communicate with each other, which node you're, you're able to speak to, how you filter in new nodes, old nodes, all that kind of stuff. And then down the line for me, I think it was after realizing, I guess, all the technical benefits, because for me, it was just abstract claims at the time that I was reading until I actually started fiddling with the code. So it was kind of moving all the way from some of these claims to practically seeing it happen because I was using Bitcoin and actually making transactions. And this was even before Lightning, but just having that idea of a promise of Lightning and then seeing it develop and mature to a point where we are currently, I think all those contribute in general to further strengthening the claims and then, again, painting this picture of a totally different system that we could easily opt into.
0: Yeah. I mean, That's one of the things that I think so many quote unquote, investors in Bitcoin miss, like, uh, because a lot of people now are coming to it and they see number go up and they kind of get the thesis that it's an entirely, you know, rework of the monetary system in a far fairer, far more efficient manner. And they're like sold on that. And they go, okay, I'll get some Bitcoin, you know, I'll stack some sats in some way. But, you know, it's an entirely different thing to get the thesis and to engage with the network itself. Like, as you said, I mean, something as simple as sending a transaction, like, you mentioned setting up a bank account and how annoying that was. I mean, we've all had that experience, right? Like the waiting in the line and the having to get signatures and stamps and, you know, and the time delay and everything. And then you could send a hundred dollars in Bitcoin and I could send it from here to you, you know, in two seconds on my phone. And when, you, you know, when you do that for the first time, you're like, wait, what just happened? Like, did I just send (laughs) money to that person across the, on the other side of the world? Like just like that for basically nothing. It's like, yep. You're like, wow, that's interesting. Definitely. You know, so I think using
1: it is. Yeah. yeah, There's, there's a, I'd say there's this instance that happened in 2020 that also helped to reshape or not even reshape, I guess, solidify my convictions with Bitcoin. And so it was way before I had an account again. So It was really just the convenience of traveling around and all I had was just my laptop and my phone. So for me, heading to, because I was at Dubai at the time, so it was really interesting at the time because I heard claims like you could send Bitcoin and then get physical cash. And I was really intrigued by that concept because for me, it meant that's actually a physical instantiation of Bitcoin, just translated in a different monetary system. So I was really curious and then I found some Coinsfera uh, exchange place and The process was fairly easy, even though there was some KYC, which is understandable for fraud, obviously. So I ended up only giving, you know, my passport and then they were able to give me an address sent to that. And then within like less than 10 minutes, I had cash. And for me, it was like, what the hell? That is so convenient. (laughs) I mean, this is just a bunch of digital numbers all around, like in abstract. And here it is physically. I could actually touch it. It's just that it's in fiat. So there are a lot of instances like that when, you know, you relate to people and they're like, yeah, you know, that doesn't sound too incredible. But the idea to say, you know, all of that was done permissionlessly, there were no additional fees or anything like that. It's, it's the promise is just incredible. I mean, that's definitely to your point. It's it's game changing, especially when you use it. It's, it's easy to read about it, but using it is a totally different thing.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Okay, so... How did you educate yourself going from, you know, presumably prepping to become an architect to learning, I guess, I I think I've heard you say before, you kind of, Ethereum first piqued your interest and then at some point you realized that, you know, the the real paradigm shift here was Bitcoin and not everything going on in shitcoin land and you made, you know, a kind of pivot. But so I guess the first question is, how did you educate yourself to become proficient in the necessary languages to contribute in the way that you now are? and two you know the real juicy question is how and when did you determine you know bitcoin not ethereum what was the thought process behind that oh yeah that's definitely interesting so early on it was
1: purely bitcoin and then within a few months of reading that naturally ethereum came to mind and the idea then was obviously you know bitcoin is dinosaur tech and Ethereum is like the future of payments and smart contracting and everything and then when it comes to like learning and education, really it was just articles on Hacker Noon, uh, I think a bunch of other blogs that I can't remember. So I was really into Pocket at the time. So what I do is bookmark like a bunch of articles for the whole day, and then throughout the whole night I'm just reading. And I kept doing that for quite a lot of months. And then when it came to the code side, I think you know Brilliant.org helped a lot. You know um, Python was I think one of the first languages I picked up. So reading the docs a lot of YouTube like a crazy amount of youtube really helped as well as just in general textbooks as well Uh, think python think c these are good books by alan b downey which i highly recommend for people getting into the space So for me i was just jumping in i'm the type to really jump into things that frankly i either don't understand or is completely over my head with the promise of eventually figuring it out as long as i keep pushing so i kept doing that for quite a while and then when it came to drawing the true distinction between Bitcoin and Ethereum, that came way, way later on. So funny enough, I actually never read the Bitcoin white paper until I think two or a year after, you know, 2017, I think it was in 2018 or 19 that I actually read the white paper. So unlike other folks, <laughs> I had the full experience. Like It's totally anachronistic on my end. <laughs> so in 2019, doing a lot of reading, really started to paint kind of a contradictory picture especially when it comes to you know alternative uses for the blockchain because my thinking was if there are so many promises with regards to alternative use why hasn't any of them really worked out and it's not the realization for me wasn't that it was something that could be easily solved by some sort of novel I guess architecture it was mostly a fundamental issue with the tech itself which is the blockchain itself because you can't necessarily use it as a database which is one issue I had early on thinking was a database similar to quite a lot of people, and then reading the source code and finding out that blocks are actually stored in a database on Bitcoin Core, I was like, "What the hell is going on?" So in twenty twenty, after going through the chain code study groups, that really really helped with regards to finally giving I guess a full on stamp because eighteen nineteen I already dropped Ethereum because I felt it was pointless and what they're building was kind of too fragile for me from a technical point of view, and then twenty twenty. The study groups we had there, because the way it works is they give you questions and on a weekly basis you come and like workshop it with other folks. So a lot of the discussions were around you know fundamental things around you know computation versus verification and all of that, and then drawing that line between the two and then trying to scale each system. It was pretty obvious that using a blockchain to scale computation isn't efficient at all, and you're just going down the path of trying to reinvent or solve problems that frankly don't exist. And are better solved with other means of technology. So that was really kind of how the progression has been. And it's like quite twisted and convoluted, but that was, I guess, the the best method I had at the time. Now at least we have Gala and other more programs that are better structured. In hindsight, I wish we had that.
0: Sure. And in terms you know, the Bitcoin rabbit hole is never ending as many of us are discovering, you know, every day. So what does kind of continuing education or, or continuing refinement of your perception about this thing look like? Is it just through the process of working on it and reading, continuing to read articles and expose yourself to the different, you know, aspects of the industry and the technology? Or is there something, you know, is there another process at play that you engage to make sure that you're doing your best to fully appreciate what's happening here? Oh yeah, a
1: ton. So it's been additive over the years. So for me, it's been going the full-on technical route and then Now I'm coming, I guess, a bit out of that and then having like a general overview and a different perspective from the funding point of view, because that provides like a totally different, what I say, framework of understanding and like even assessing certain ideas and certain concepts that I previously held and notions, because it gives you like (laughs) a very, very practical way to test that out. Because, I mean, it's very, very easy to draw up a deck. And it's, it's another thing to actually run a proper business that has a proper business plan and actually is able to scale and not just, you know, flimsy claims. So that's one. Two is definitely doing a lot more engagement with actual devs as well in this space and trying to educate them on, you know, how Bitcoin works, ETC running gala and all that. And for me, I think it's the combination of all three in terms of educating other folks, doing work on Bitcoin Core as well as working on, you know, the venture capital side. For me, all three have been a healthy amount of, I guess, constant reading, rereading, learning, relearning, and then trying to really debunk previous claims I have or I had. Because my, my thinking is, whenever I hold a belief that seems a bit too strong, I tend to try and challenge it as much as possible to refine it. Because you know the epistemic, uh, I guess, approach is often missing <laughs> in a lot of folks in the space. I mean, it's cool to be toxic, but you still have to constantly challenge yourselves to, to actually get to that next stage and progress as you know, an actual individual and even intellectually speaking.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you can make a case that the veneer or even, you know, the truth of toxicity in certain, um, senses is a component of inviting as vigorous pushback on your view. And you could characterize that as being quite in line with what you just said. Right. Cause like, yeah. I'm going to, whatever view I currently have, whatever my perspective currently is, I'm going to represent it to the max so that I invite everyone who wants to poke holes in it. And there on that battlefield, we get the refinement that we're looking for. And of course, you know, not, not everyone adheres to that philosophy. There are just, you know, people that are toxic for the sake of it. But I think the, you know, the ecosystem or community or whatever we want to call it has, does have as an attribute that desire not to uphold previously held notions, but to continue to refine our perspective and our understanding of these things so that we can continually kind of zero in or triangulate on the truth. Because I think, you know, that's what, that's what brings a lot of us, or if it doesn't bring a lot of us in, it it begins to dawn on us that like, that's kind of what we're after. We're after, you know, truth here. And to the extent that this thing, as you said, I mean, people come into Bitcoin and they start to reassess their previously held, you know, notions or convictions. And, you know, you almost don't even realize it, but you're, you're constantly bouncing what you think, you know, and your existing perspective off this thing that seems to be a kind of a mechanism for revealing truth. And you stay with it long enough and it does it for many areas of your life, not just monetary, econo- and mo- you know, monetary history or economics or computer science. Like you kind of are swimming in this soup now where this thing is helping you refine a variety of perspectives. And that's what makes it so part part of the things that, or one of the things that makes it so interesting is that it has that kind of broadness to its ability to refine, you know, your understanding or perspective. Um, did, did your, like, I'm thinking in my mind now, and, and like, I, I don't know anything else about your background, but I'm just thinking if, if, if it were me and I was like on the track to become an architect, and when you say that, I think of like George Costanza and Seinfeld, right? Because <laughs> when he wants to pretend to be like sophisticated, he tells people he's an architect uh, I forget the name he used now. Vandalay, I think maybe Art Vandalay. Anyways, if, if my parents, like if, if that was a track I was on and they were kind of happy about it, it's a nice responsible, like, you know, it's a good lifestyle I can generate from that. And then I just totally veered off course and was like, I'm kind of obsessed with this thing in Bitcoin now, and I have no education or background in engaging it, but I'm going to teach myself, and that's kind of what I'm going to devote my life to. I could see my parents being somewhat concerned about that change in track. <laughs> what was it like for you to uh, to go down this road that is so unknown to so many? Oh yeah, it's,
1: it was personally it was crazy, but I
0: think for my mom
1: especially, she's she's a type to really give her kids the space to grow and develop and chase after things that they are passionate about. Because I guess, fortunately, unlike, you know, other parents, which is not necessarily to contrast the to or poke out on, you know, deficiencies on either method of parenting. But for her, really the idea is it's a lot easier for your kids to excel if they're trying to do things that they're actually passionate about as opposed to imposing it on them. So even totally. the architecture route, it wasn't like a push from her per se. It was kind of the wider society of, you know, oh, you could do math and you can draw, you just do that. And I was like, oh, okay, sounds plausible. <laughs> and then for her, it was, do you really want to do this? And I was like, hmm, I actually didn't think of that. And then really realizing that, okay, like what, what's my purpose, honestly, in life? And then I went through like a whole existential crisis and all of that. And then going through all of that the whole time, Her view was relax. At the end of the day, things happen when they should happen. And you should just, you know, chase after things that you know is primarily what you want to do. Forget about what people are going to say or what people think. Because at the end of the day, even if you do go to school or or wherever it is, you're going to be the person that has all that responsibility to actually get from point A to point B in terms of Mm -hmm. chasing that dream. So if it's a false dream, then you're definitely living in someone else's nightmare, so to speak. So, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to have quite a good support system for my mom, especially in terms of really pursuing this, because I wouldn't expect other parents to be comfortable, you know, having a kid going multiple nights in a row, just binging the office and going through Bitcoin work. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, and, And kind of related to that before we, you know, keep going with the kind of the chronology here, but what was, you grew up in Nigeria, right? Yeah. What was growing up in Nigeria like? Oof,
1: definitely fascinating. So Nigeria is a it's a, <laughs> it's a crazy country. And it's it's both entertaining and is also both quite crazy from an economic standpoint. So living there is a mix of I guess using comedy to cope as as a primary mechanism, and as well as just enjoying the The randomness the sheer emergent properties that arise from having like horrible economic policies very very difficult circumstances in terms of finding jobs and actually living day to day but at the same time still having this community of resilient folks that still push through and it's it's just a combination of quite a lot of things so for me you know early on wasn't really doing too much to be honest just an average guy just working around you know was quite involved with dancing early on, like- Dancing? I guess at the time, yeah, dancing, like break dancing. What kind of dancing? Break <laughs> dancing. Cool. Yeah. So it was a lot of, you know, just playing around, trying to have fun, you know, a lot of soccer as well. I still play soccer from time to time. But then down the line, it became, I guess, more apparent in terms of the, the issues at hand, economically speaking, because for me, growing up initially, it was like fairly comfortable. And then down the line, it did become quite rocky, to be very honest. Without getting into, you know, personal sure. details, and then it eventually morphed into, I guess, or should I say, coincided with the Bitcoin journey itself, because that was about that tail end in terms of both financial issues as well as realizing what my place is in on, on Earth. Frankly, what to do with the rest of my life and all of that. So growing up was really quite easy initially. I mean. Don't have too many memories growing up. I was told I was a problem child, don't have memories of that. So that's good. And then eventually (laughs) going the path of trying to read up on on things and trying to, I guess, change my life for the better, which is through Bitcoin. So there's definitely a lot of philosophical pulls towards Bitcoin and emotional pulls as well. I think that kind of underlies my core basis for sticking and staying as as a Bitcoiner.
0: Yeah. Well, once you see what's really happening here. It's really hard to make a case for devoting yourself to anything else. At least yeah. that's been my experience. Um, you you know, I hear a lot about through people that I've spoken to that either live in and are from Nigeria or have done business there. You hear about this like tremendous entrepreneurial zeal or energy that characterizes the place. You know, it's a small country, relatively speaking, with a massive population and, you know, as you said, kind of, um, well, maybe chaotic is not the right word, but <laughs> unstable in certain ways, be it political or, or financial or economic, but still this, apparently this zeal for building, for entrepreneurship, like what do you think it is? Why do you think that's the case if, if you think it is the case? And also was that palpable when you were growing up? And so despite you know the quote unquote problems there was still this obvious you know notion that if you hustled if you worked you know you could build something unique you could you could build a a life you know a good life for yourself yeah definitely i think you know hard
1: times result in or bring up you know hard people or resilient people so for nigeria in general it's been kind of the the overall story so to speak in terms of like trying to live day by day and people constantly trying to provide for their families and trying to just work through the next day. So there's definitely a lot of entrepreneurial spirit because at the core of it is not only survival, but I think it's kind of forced survival because there isn't any other option. It's it's kind of like you either work hard or you don't. And frankly in, in some circumstances which are really dire, that that could mean life or death. So I think it's really built up a culture where as long as you do the hard work, you're definitely gonna get rewarded for it. And this stretches across the, the entire spectrum. So whether you're talking about on a low scale, like if you're able to really put in the work on a farm, end up having produce, and that taking it at a much higher level, if you're able to put in the work and build something of value, you're able to be rewarded by that through you know additional capital flowing in, either through VCs, ETC, and then growing down actual company. So a lot of people see a lot of success stories all across that entire chain. So I think for a lot of people, it's trying to emulate that. And the major issue that arises from what I've seen growing up and even now is people don't necessarily always have a productive outlet or like a legal outlet, frankly speaking, to showcase this type of entrepreneurial drive. And hence why you tend to see, you know, the cliches of scams. And then you still yet see quite a number of legal businesses coming out of Nigeria and a lot of folks that end up migrating outside of Nigeria end up rising to really, really high ranks outside the country. So then you're like, what's happening with the folks that are currently there? So for us, I think the more important thing down the line is not necessarily acknowledging this reality of, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who is more to do with how do we productively use that sort of environment to ensure that we have a better system or a better society overall from all this, you know, hardware coming out of people and it also ties into the security issues, especially in states like Niger, like uh, Kaduna, which I'm in. The problem is a lot of folks don't necessarily have the sort of productive outlet to channel their, I guess hard work or their their talents, so to speak. So they mm-hmm. tend to opt for the easiest route, which is you know, frankly, banditry and all kind of stuff. So for us, is okay, one thing we've learned as a state is, foreign investments or investments in general into the local community actually helps get rid of all of that negative issues. Because what tends to happen is people now have an avenue that's a lot more productive, which is frankly job creation. And the moment they have that, they now become incentivized to protect those investments. And down the line, what that translates to is a more healthier community where people are able to go to school, you know, grow up, have a decent life, and then they're able to actually get into good jobs that could provide down the line. So I think that's really the gist of the country itself and how I think we should start architecting or re-architecting some of the structures we have to really get to where we've been saying we want to go to, but frankly I haven't been putting the energy productively to do so.
0: Yeah. Well said. You know, what what a what a notion that uh when people are given the opportunity to work, create value for themselves, i.e., in the form of property, and have full rights to those property, i.e., responsibility over it, that it leads to good cooperative you know peaceful outcomes but when you either don't have those opportunities or you violate the fruits of that labor then you get a lot of negative downstream consequences you know surprise surprise um what's the situation with bitcoin in nigeria you know because we're i think we we would both agree that like if you want to accelerate your development in the world today, if you want to deliver property rights to more people, if you want to bring more freedom to more people, more opportunity, et cetera, et cetera, integrating Bitcoin into the mix is probably a good idea. But the flip side of that is that in the current fiat era that we're living in, very few governments are going to want to give up the magical money printer that they have in the basement because that bestows so much power and as we said at the beginning, unjust—at least in my opinion—power. But nevertheless, this is the era that we live in, and so convincing them that supplanting that with Bitcoin is ultimately in the best interest of everybody can be a difficult sell. So I'm, I'm curious what the reaction or the treatment of Bitcoin is like in in Nigeria. Yeah, I mean, both it's... from a so, sorry, both from a, a like a people interest because I you hear a lot about kind of the the use of Bitcoin and then from a government perspective?
1: Oh yeah, it's, I'd say it's fairly, it's straightforward and complex. So straightforward from the average point of view, like bottom-up, the average citizens, and then it's complex when it comes to the regulation side. So on the regulation side, it's been ambiguous, so to speak, because it's not outright banned. It's it's really just the CBN circular ban that that was brought out, I think, a few years back and with that, basically what it says is exchanges can't necessarily have a bank account, exchanges that deal with Bitcoin or crypto in general. And then at the same time, if you have a Nigerian bank account and I do, and I send you a transfer and in the invoice, I put Bitcoin or crypto, your account actually gets banned, which is kind of crazy. It was like receiver, receivers getting right. punished. And then in general, when it comes to like the federal government itself, they're not necessarily against Bitcoin per se, And neither is the, what I say, the SEC. In fact, they've been a lot more, I'd say, positive in terms of trying to understand it and craft out regulation than the CBN. Really, it's just the CBN that has been the the major organization. What's
0: the CBN? Central Bank or
1: something? Yeah, Central Bank of Nigeria. So they've been the ones that have been showing at least to some certain degree that they aren't exactly pro-Bitcoin, more averse to Bitcoin per se. And then when it comes to the average folks, really for them, it's about the Nair is failing I need to make do with you know the the food crisis that's going on what are my alternatives so a lot of people go you know hard assets like you know frankly cattle house you know land all of that and then another Avenue that they see now is you know stable coins Bitcoin and with the Bitcoin angle is fairly interesting so we tend to see a lot of people get in speculatively which is understandable since they're trying to make it big as quick as possible and then down the line they start to understand the actual long-term value of bitcoin which is you know providing this freedom money and this freedom network for you on a long time horizon so they tend to change what their i guess risk appetite is like and their time horizon when it comes to both an investment point of view and in general using bitcoin efficiently so when i say efficiently so other than just using it at a local scale they're using it for remittance as well which has really helped a lot of families in terms of not only portraying um money that usually goes through you know, Western Union that ends up being like trickles when it comes down, but also doing the reverse as well, sending back money outside when it comes to paying for school fees and all of that. So for them, it's been a case of over the years, realizing a lot more of the benefits and avenues of which they could really capitalize on Bitcoin. And currently we're seeing a mix between Bitcoin and stable coins. Stable coins because a lot of people that are living day to day on Bitcoin, so to speak, haven't necessarily had the best experience possible from a price point of view. So they tend to flock to USDT and the other stable coins. And then with Bitcoin, they tend to stay more of a long term in terms of just putting as much as possible and then DCAing. A lot of people, after they've gone through the whole speculative route, they tend to settle on DCA. And I think credit is due to companies like Bitnob, which have really provided, I guess, a very, very convenient way to get into Bitcoin safely. For a lot of people and with the yeah. lightning network too that has really provided them with a different outlook on bitcoin because the previous claims of it's being slow blah 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 were totally shattered because all you have to do is tell them you know use lightning and then tell me how it goes and they come back oh what career you know now i get bitcoin i'm like oh well, I told you so <laughs> so that's kind of how the mix has been so really for us in terms of building and next steps it's been how do we get people onto bitcoin safely and securely so in terms of you know um, custody, which has been a huge one, we can't necessarily yeah. be advocating for self custody because that's a lot of technical challenges. Which is where FEDI comes in. And then in terms of trying to onboard them through Rails, they're familiar with us US USSD codes through you know stuff like Achankura is doing, for example, which is sending and receiving Bitcoin by USSD codes, and even as Teco co- as well. They're making good push in terms of the on ramping because a familiar I guess avenue, which is through basically vouchers, and a lot of people are already know that sort of avenue so that's really what the landscape is like there's going to be a lot more stuff with regards to mining too and helping build out energy grids to really fix all the energy deficits we're seeing but in general that's kind of what the mix is and what we're looking at
0: yeah the first well first of all you mentioned Bitnob. you know i met bernard as well in in norway and had him on the show and man you know he's such a scrappy you know entrepreneur and a great dude i i love that guy um yeah it's you know one of the things it's that is so such a shame about this adoption process and again like you know what are you going to do it's it's how things go but because people are in such dire circumstances in so many instances and like this is for the western world as well i mean there's a lot of people that are just getting by paycheck to paycheck you know and you see the world around you 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 whether it's inculcated in you through media or you just envision a better life for you and your family you you want to move towards that as fast as possible. And so many people get sucked in to, you know, the get rich quick stuff. Oh, this is a way to get rich quick. Oh, I'm going to go into Bitcoin's, you know, uh, it's, it's already been done for Bitcoin, but XYZ coin is the way I'm going to get it. And again, you can fully empathize with those people, right? Because of course everyone wants to get out of bad situations as quickly as possible. And it's, it's really hard to convince people that the best route to take is to just keep working, but just save in a more secure, inviolable vehicle, i.e. Bitcoin, rather than in a money that can be, you know, where that can be inflated away and your value can be taken from you that way, or in other assets that might be more easily confiscated, stolen, et cetera, et cetera, in different jurisdictions, you know, it's, because it's not sexy at all. It's not sexy to say, hey, (laughs) do everything you're doing, just whatever savings you're able to, you know, keep, funnel them in the direction of bitcoin instead of the direction of you know the paper currency and you know people are like well wow, i mean what what's that really going to do and it's like well give it some time you know and 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 you might you might find out that you know in 2 years and 5 years you're in a you've incre- you've you've gone to a better position at least a little bit right and then that's something you can build on and you know you never know what happens when you get that momentum going in the right direction but if you go for the get rich quick thing right off the bat, most, like 99% of the time, you're going to wind up in a worse position, right? You're going to wind <laughs> up deep, deeper in that worse position than, you know, clawing out of it. And I guess that's just the nature of the beast in the era that we're in, but it's, uh, you know, it is a, it is a bit of a shame, but also, which is why it's so great that people like you, in terms of the companies you're investing in, and the, obviously the protocol work you're doing and Bernard, who's building these solutions that make it easier for people to make the right choice right? To set up an account and DCA automatically with whatever your, you know, your savings might be and help them with custody, whether it's Fetty Mint or what Bernard offers or any of the other solutions that people, you know, uh, offer or propagate. I mean, it's slow, but I think that's (laughs) the way to do it. Is there much, um, you know, one of the interesting, uh, themes that we've been following on the show and that I'm super interested in is kind of this like flare gas, Bitcoin mining, you know, off-grid Bitcoin mining through flare gas, such a incredibly unique and interesting application of the technology and so many benefits to, you know, pretty much everywhere. Is there much of that in Nigeria? Yeah, I mean, we've seen,
1: we've previewed quite a lot of proposals. Usually the major issue is securing the land itself and then ensuring that there isn't any clampdown down the line in terms of a risk point of view. But in general, there's a lot of, I guess, zeal to do so. Because again, Bitcoin is probably I wouldn't say probably now, but it is the only method in terms of trying to get carbon, carbon negative. And for us, being a country that ranks top 10 in terms of our gas globally, it's it's a fairly straightforward thing. Because again, the existing methods that we have, just frankly, just flaring the gas makes no sense at all when you could productively make use of this. And also, it, it also provides obviously additional revenue stream for some of these companies. And Given a lot of them tend to have ESG based you know sustainability goals or r and d labs, it means they could have additional funding for that to even find out even more efficient long-term solutions down the line. and also helping with developing the local infrastructure we have, because again, we have a huge issue with regards to distribution companies here in Nigeria. And frankly, even on the energy grid production side, a lot of people that have you know access to these mines or concessions to some of these hydro plants and all that. They tend to have a lot of capacity, but there's frankly no one to offtake that, which is why a lot of these products don't even start because they're dead on arrival. So for us, having this always online market for energy is the only viable way forward in terms of building out the energy grid systems across Nigeria and even Africa as a whole. So in the next couple of years, I think you'll see a lot more individuals, you know, recursive ETC and a lot more VCs and even frankly, folks on the ground trying to Really capitalize on this fact, which is providing you know these sort of developments through Bitcoin mining. I think there's an incredible amount that can be done. I'm really interested Mm -hmm. when it comes to Hydra, especially because it's one of the the most efficient ways to get started in terms of the renewables, um, I guess, paradigm so to speak. Third gas, definitely, but yeah, you'll, you'll see a lot more of these down the line, and this is one of our main priorities as well.
0: And that's like local entrepreneurs putting those proposals in front of you at Recursive.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. From various parts of the country.
0: Sweet. Um, all right, back to the timeline for a second. So you start, uh, learning about and then contributing or, you know, by 2020, you're contributing to Bitcoin core. What is that process like, you know, like, because for a lot of us, it's this kind of, most people don't fully understand it or appreciate it. We don't know how it goes. There's so much we don't understand. So there's, there's a type of deference to core devs, right? It's like, ah, you, you're doing a lot of stuff that I probably don't really understand. And therefore I like, I'm just going to assume you're smart and doing a good job and it all (laughs) is working well, you know, um, not to say that we don't have means of making sure that we're, you know, many of us run our own nodes and we can make sure that we're interacting with the network on the basis that we, you know, we choose to be, and we want to be, but there's much about that process that, uh, is kind of opaque for us. So what, you, what has been the experience, what has the experience been like for you, you know, to be working with those people and working on that project? Yeah, it's been interesting. It's been
1: a lot of disillusionment. I mean, first and foremost, another interesting thing with Bitcoin is, you know, a lot of people have probably heard this on your podcast or elsewhere, you know, the immaculate conception of Bitcoin. And it's mm-hmm. quite interesting. And I think not a lot of people give credit to Bitcoin, or I guess the Bitcoin community in general, but it's really a grassroots movement. I mean, even outside of just dev, there's a lot that is required of multiple stakeholders. Whether you're a designer, you're an artist, you're an entrepreneur, etc., to keep this whole system going. So I think a lot of people, you know, feel that development is like the primary way to actually contribute. But I'd argue is way more multifaceted than than just contributing. So in general, the the whole process has been, frankly, very interesting because initially I was thinking. You know, to be a core dev, you probably need to be like a thousand X coder or like a giga chad. But at the end of the (laughs) day, what I realized is a lot of people started out really, really, I guess, early. And a lot of them already had a lot of experience working in other open source projects. So it was fairly easy in terms of the jump. So for me, it was, okay, I'm not the type to just jump into things and like cause even more chaos than what I found initially. So in 2019, really, it was... A lot of reading a lot of looking at pull requests not necessarily even reviewing code just seeing how the interactions go on github just to see Mm -hmm. what the community is like because twitter at that time was really that was like post-civil war so it was still freshly hot (laughs) and quite toxic (laughs) so my fear was you know that would be replicated on the dev side but i guess my great amazement it was the exact opposite like it was a totally different world though like you know Alice in Wonderland was kind of how the moment was for me in terms of description. So because it was so inviting
0: and helpful, and not like not combative whatsoever.
1: At all, at all. The only times you see folks getting combative is on highly technical things or folks that are bike shedding endlessly. That tends to be, you know, the avenues. But it's been what's bike shedding. Bike shedding is essentially when. You you keep um, workshopping something, so you keep going at it in terms of trying to either propose new solutions or trying to drag out existing conversations. I see. So for a lot of people, you know, uh, in the space that are already devs like, you know, um, John Attack and some of the others, they already had like articles on how to contribute to core, and I found that very very useful because what it did was walk through, you know, the technicals of how to set up an environment on your laptop, how to download the source code. All of that was really helpful, all the way to the point where I was going through the good first issues, which is where a lot of people want to contribute. Go to is basically tags of like each issue where noobs could just attack it because they're like fairly trivial. So mm-hmm. for me going through that and then proposing the change, downloading core, compiling all of that, and then seeing the feedback from the community was really very very interesting. And walking me through the change was also really confusing to me because I thought. It was like, as soon as you propose a change, you're all on your own. Folks go yay or nay. But a lot of people provide a lot of helpful feedback. The whole process is really, really fascinating because it's, there are a lot of emergent leadership roles that tend to happen. So people tend to think it's like top down, okay, you're a core maintainer. means if there's an issue, you're like the leader of this whole pull request, but it tends to right. be quite dynamic. It's usually depending on folks in charge of that, I guess, facet of the code base or folks that are just interested in that or have been working on that. So it's been like that. And then 2021, when I started doing a lot more contributions, it was stepping back and going and doing a lot more work reviewing code, because that tends to be what a lot of core contributors do. So just go on there review code, which is actually a lot more productive because people are constantly creating pull requests. So it's better to help reduce that content to add to it via proposing changes. But yeah, in general, it's that's really how the landscape is like. It takes quite a while to build up reputation and Try and build up, I guess, your technical acumen as well, because you're constantly finding new ways to be more efficient with your time management, reviewing code and all of that. So it's quite a journey.
0: Has your involvement in that process changed your perspective one way or the other on how resilient Bitcoin is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because early on,
1: you know, there's this great article by James Dunlop on who controls Bitcoin Core or who controls Bitcoin, I think a lot of people should take a look at. So for me, early on, it was trying to understand that aspect of Bitcoin, which was frankly confusing to me, because if it's open and you know there aren't any leaders, then how is it being led, so right. to speak? So how does stuff get done? Exactly. So going the code route exposed what the existing structures were like in terms of getting all the way from proposing a change or trying to fix something or trying to propose something to work in a different way or maybe fixing like a security issue i think one thing i've learned is even though like the whole i guess development process happens on github which is you know a centralized system essentially is because it's a company it still maintains like a fair amount of um what i say uh distributed um delegations when it comes to roles and what people contribute as a whole. Because the entire system, even now, is getting a lot more, um, what I say, less centralized from a leadership point of view. Because early on, it was like a single core maintainer, and then he cedes power to the next core maintainer, blah, blah, blah. But recently, it's been a lot more, I guess, um, distributed in terms of who handles what and how the release cycles are handled as well. So for me, it's been seeing the entire process of how everyone works together to still try and push the project to a stage where it keeps getting better and better. And also viewing controversial changes firsthand. So, you know, we saw folks, frankly, you know, um, fork the chain and try and put in proof-of-sake stuff and all that. We tend to see a lot of people come in, new hot noobs coming in, trying to change, you know, how the code works or thinking they've fixed Bitcoin and seeing how how straightforward it is. I mean, even, even with the process of rejecting a change, Bitcoin Core handles it by, I guess, requiring people that reject changes to have a reason. So while you could accept and not necessarily provide any reason for that, we call them, you know, um, ACKs or T-A-C-K, like tested ACK and all that. And acknowledgement is basically what it means. If you're rejecting it, so you're saying N-A-K, NACK, you still have to provide a reason. So it's not like people are just blanketly throwing away folks and gatekeeping. It actually has to be productive and useful. And the way consensus emerges from that is quite, it's, there isn't a specific way. Sometimes it takes quite a lot of folks just because the change is quite nuanced and, and subtle. And sometimes just like two or three folks because it's fairly trivial. But that's how it, I guess, works kind of in a nutshell.
0: And how many people would you say estimate, an estimate contribute to Bitcoin Core? Oof. So the
1: contributions are like, I guess, tiered. So we have uh, folks that are only one-time contributors, so they come around, propose a single change, or you know, be involved with just a single um, pull request. And then we have folks that are more than one, you know, one pull request that they've got merged. And then we have recurring contributors as well. So these are folks that are constantly churning out more changes and also reviewing code. And then a step higher than that are even more folks that are at that core maintainer level. So. They're mostly tasked with kind of a managerial, uh, janitorial role, which is, you know, ensuring that they stewards, some of the development of that part of the Bitcoin code base, like the networking or even mempool, etc. So with regards to the contributions, like as a whole, I'd say it probably is a few thousand devs, maybe a thousand something. And then down as you kind of scope it into more active folks, it gets to like a couple of hundreds and then folks that are both a mix of core maintainers as well as like frequent contributors. That's like less than a hundred, way less than a hundred. And then subsequently like 20, (laughs) 10 down the line with Marco Falk, I think having the most pull requests, I mean, commits.
0: Why do you think it's so few? Is it lack of direct compensation? Is it difficulty in doing the work? Is it, I don't know what else would like, and then is it, maybe it's not few. I mean, I, I don't really know how many people generally contribute to or open source uh, software projects, but if it is relatively few, um, at least for a project of this scale, uh, why do you think that's the case? Oh yeah, it's definitely a f- quite a few, especially relative to how much
1: value is being secured by the network. <laughs> All right. So I think it's, it's a huge mix, but it's not particularly um, unique to Bitcoin Core. I mean, this spans the entire open source, I guess, ecosystem. A lot of folks that work full-time are either doing a pro bono or they're hired by a company to work on that specifically, or they're on grants, for example. I mean, the good thing is there are more sustainable routes for developers that are pursuing the Bitcoin core route or like the open source Bitcoin developer route. So even outside of grants, I think getting hired by certain companies to just work on core specifically, that also helps. And even on the grant side, we're seeing a lot more folks that are providing grants also include mentorship, which is, you know, something we pride ourselves in at Trust as well. So it's definitely ensuring that folks are compensated as well as trying to ensure that folks are adequately educated as well about how to progress through that journey without necessarily taking the longest route possible or burning themselves out or chasing grants endlessly. So I think it's definitely a healthy mix of compensation as well as trying to onboard people as, as well as possible without creating too much noise on the network or should I say yeah. the project.
0: Well, I, I guess this is a good segue into some of the work that you've been doing, right? So take another step on the timeline, but Kala and B Trust are at least partially oriented towards that very thing, right? Getting people educated or the necessary skills or support in order to, Contribute to the project and possibly other stuff. So, can you maybe expand on what those two projects are all about? Oh yeah, definitely.
1: So, with Gala, the main goal is you know um, born out of conversations with Bernard, Carla, and, and Tim Akimbo, because the idea was we know that there are very very few Bitcoin core developers around the world. There are even fewer in in Africa in general. And at the time of starting, I think we could count the amount of african devs on like probably two hands or so which is ourselves and a couple of others so for us it was okay if we're saying we need a lot more bitcoin devs in general a lot of talented engineers we already know there are a lot of talented engineers heading into other projects in the shitcoin space so how can we productively or should i say how can we move and, and kind of channel them more into bitcoin core to help out with you know, strengthening, the, the, I guess, the ecosystem, the protocol itself, and even associated projects around in terms of the layers, so even if it's like Blue Wallet or BDK. So for us, it's okay. Currently, the route we took all individually to get to where we were was very, very convoluted as we've explored in this <laughs> right. so far. So the idea was providing a proper viable structure for anyone, anywhere that's already an existing engineer because we don't want to spend the time teaching them how to code We think our efforts are better suited in terms of just reskilling them and reshaping them and remolding them into Bitcoin developers. So a lot of it has been not only providing a proper, I guess, pathway for them, but ensuring that the pathway is useful no matter where at that point you leave. So with Gala, our folks tend to always ask what the journey is like. So for us, the way we've structured it is with the study groups and then immediately after that there's like a seminar process and then the main program itself and the reason for i guess elongating that whole process is no matter what point you come into Gala or wherever you leave you still leave with something useful so if you leave at just the preliminary stage of like study groups you have a good enough amount of knowledge to continue on the self-taught path if you leave at the seminar path you're most likely got picked up at a some other company because you're almost there and then by the time you're done at the main program itself, the goal is for you to actually be an actual Bitcoin core developer. So, well, a Bitcoin developer, so to speak, or a Lightning developer. So you're either going into you know, some of these other companies that are outside of Africa or within Africa. And the idea is there's like really no, pla- no pipeline for developers in the Bitcoin space. So the whole point of Gala is to provide that pipeline. And with the program itself, we're providing them with stipends. So you're literally getting paid to learn about bitcoin at the end of the day you get a job in a bitcoin company or a lightning company and then with btrust the idea is to really kind of abstract that whole process and try and provide as much value to grow the full out spectrum of the ecosystem so initially what we're looking at is through developer-based programs like the btrust team that we have of open source developers so currently we have one member which is vlad and what is working on is bdk the idea there is we provide a year-long grant, which is exclusive, meaning he can't seek grants outside of that just so that he can focus on what the core mandate is for his grant, which is working on BDK. So the idea is to grow out that team and kind of see how that plays out in terms of providing a valuable way or like a, a sustainable way for people to transition from existing engineer into Bitcoin developer. And then down the line is really looking at other programs around education that also do the same, whether it's at like the non-technical level all the way to the technical level, also, you know, things around funding certain conferences that are geared towards developers are helping out with the general strengthening of the ecosystem. So that's kind of how the two projects, I guess, are structured and what the overall mission is.
0: Right. So, so Kala is f- far more oriented towards, you know, as you said, kind of retooling people to allow them to work on Bitcoin Core or work within Bitcoin oriented companies. And Trust is that, but broader scope. So education events, just basically bringing more Bitcoin, uh, opportunities and stuff like that into Africa. Is that a proper characterization?
1: Yeah, definitely. That definitely captures the distinction between the two.
0: And so, so Kala, is is it something you found, did you uh, found Kala with the, a couple of the people that you mentioned?
1: Oh yeah. So it's myself, Bernard, Carla, and Tim.
0: And in order to fund it, you know, it's some sort, is it a charity? Like you get donations from people, oh, that's yeah, how you yeah, provide the stipend yeah, and stuff? Yeah,
1: yeah. Both are nonprofit. So Kala is funded strictly by the Bitcoin community. Same thing with right. B-Trust as well. I mean, with B-Trust, it's solely funded by Jack and, and Jay-Z, and we don't plan right. on seeking outside investments for now. But that's kind of both how both work, I guess.
0: Cool. And with, with Kala first, has it been difficult to, has funding been a challenge? Um, or has interested, uh, participants been the challenge? Oof, (laughs) that's an interesting one. I think participants have been a lot more difficult,
1: not necessarily in terms of finding them, but in terms of getting folks that are really, really focused on Bitcoin exclusively. (laughs) Because with the funding side, it's been fairly straightforward because a lot of companies in the space already want to contribute or give back to the Bitcoin space. And this is like one of many ways they could do so. And mm. with the participants, it's been... So we ran the first cohort and we had 10 folks that were graduated into Bitcoin companies. Now, out of that 10, we had applications, I think, totaling around 400 plus all the way to that point. So really the main reason why that skewered down, obviously one is the target for us was a small cohort. But at the mm. same time, a lot of things we tend to see is folks that are really, really good candidates getting into the study group, for example, tend to kind of drop out down the line. Sometimes it tends to be, you know, just not being able to keep up with the workload. And that's really usually like a huge indication that they'll likely not be able to handle the main program. Another is, you know, constant distractions into thinking, you know, I'm focused on Bitcoin and blockchain, which tends to be one of the red flags that we've been identifying over the, over the year plus that we've been running Gala. So it's been a case of trying to, really find folks that are really, really, dedicated because the idea is once you prove out a pipeline, it becomes really, really easy to convince folks to get in at the beginning of that pipeline. So with the first cohort, the main thing that has really helped with regards to really filtering out folks that are coming in is people now see the promise and now see the benefit of really sticking and going down the whole Bitcoin path and what the benefits lie in terms of like going through the whole process. So we're seeing a lot more people that are more focused on Bitcoin, as opposed to I'm here for Web3, crypto, ETC.
0: Right. Is it the companies that you connect them with when they graduate the program, are, have they already agreed to, to take the candidates or is it basically just you'll make the connection and if they get it, they get it, if they don't, they don't?
1: Oh yeah, so the way it's, it, it works and it worked with the first cohort is reaching out to a lot of these companies even before we started the program. To see, right. first and foremost, what the requirements are on their end. And then second of all, try and pipe that through the main program to see how we could get those developers more, f- I guess, finely suited to the actual mm-hmm. jobs. And the way we structured the program is like a typical engineering team. So they have weekly stand-ups, they have mentors, like the organizers ourselves and some of the folks at the teaching faculty. And then as soon as they get into those companies, the, the structure is... Really, we've, speak, we, we've spoken with the companies themselves, and their idea is to either trial these guys or full-on get employment, depending on what their requirements are like. So it goes; it varies from company to company, but that's kind of what the arrangement is. And then down the line, we make the connections. And by that time, the idea is they're ready for not only the interview process, but actually the onboarding and handling all the workload that comes with the actual full employment.
0: Right. Um how did B-Trust come about? I, I mean, like first generally, like how did Jack and Jay put it, you know, have the idea to put it together and, and where did it come from? And then how did you get involved? Because I imagine with something like that, <laughs> there would have been like a ton of interest and a ton of applications just by name recognition alone. Right. And then, you know, of course, if you're a Bitcoiner, then the work would appeal to you. Um, but yeah, how, how did B- B-Trust come about and how did you come to be so involved in it?
1: Oh, yeah. So with B Trust, if I recall, I think it was in 2021, early in the year that Jack tweeted it. I think at the time it was when, you know, there were huge, I guess, large regulatory clampdowns from India and some other parts in Africa. So, again, this is all speculation on my end. But I think sure. on Jack's and, and Jay's end, it was really how do we protect the integrity of this ecosystem that's just budding and ensure that it gets to a stage where it could potentially get to. So setting up Trust was essentially providing the necessary capital but ensuring that it's up to the community on the ground to really, I guess, find the proper channels to properly allocate this capital where it could be put to good use in terms of strengthening the ecosystem. So they launched that. It was an open application. I saw it through um, a DM from my older bro. And he was like, you know, try it out. And I'm like, yeah, you know, Ray Paxwell and all these guys are trying it. How the hell am I going to get in? And I was like, yeah, you know, we should definitely try it. And I was like, yeah, you know, worst case, I don't get it. And I was like, yeah. So I I did it. And it was really vague, to be honest. It was just like a name and then proof of work, whatever that meant. So I put it (laughs) in, you know, work all the stuff I was working on. And then I totally forgot about it because it took quite a while before they got back to everyone. And I frankly just Mm. assumed I wasn't. I didn't get to the next stage. So I wasn't too bothered. And then they got back. And the whole process was really filtering out not only the problems you identify, because that's very, very easy for a lot of people to complain. I mean, and is a nation of complaints. <laughs> so it was very easy to come up with that. And then for me, it was the prompts on trying to find out what the solution is and what happens if you get on the board. Those are really, really interesting. And that eventually snowballed into a whole article I dropped in Bitcoin magazine. So all the way up to the interview process with Jack at the final stage, It was really very, very helpful for me personally because that was the first, not first time, but that was one of the major times I had in terms of trying to scope out everything I want to achieve or at least Mm. contribute to the space that would really have a huge impact, like compounded impact. So it was all the way from you know what programs, what problems do we see? How do we fix the existing systems that we have with regards to onboarding, education, translation, all of that. So it was really fascinating all the way up to meeting the other uh, members like Carla, which is interesting because we're working on Gala. And I didn't know she also applied. So it was very, very incredible oh, cool. to see her on the team because she's definitely amazing. And also working with OGs like Obi and even you folks like, you know, Odrama as well. It's been really, really incredible. So that whole process, that's kind of how it came to be. And then meeting the team and then ironing out and then pushing out our core principles and making as public as possible because, again, that's one of our core tenets because this thing can't really work if we're like a shadow org with a lot of capital.
0: Mm. And so did you, you you said that the final step was to speak with Jack, what was that conversation like? You know, Jack's obviously (laughs) super well-known, you know, tech billionaires, you know, but also hardcore Bitcoiners. What was it like speaking with them? I was really it was a lot, I guess,
1: comfortable or should I say a lot more comfortable than I anticipated because I was quite nervous to be honest getting on the call and then eventually getting on it because Jack is really laid back. So it was really it was a really great conversation. So it's hitting up all the all the problems outlined, what the core mandate is like, or what I'm thinking the core mandate will be because a lot of the conversations settled around or was really around what my vision was if I do get selected and in general, what are the things I've seen or outlined in the space and how we could really fix up all of that. And really on my end, I was trying to kind of pick his brain, so to speak, to see where his head is at in terms of things that maybe I hadn't considered previously in terms of how we could provide value or things that he was currently thinking about. But yeah, it was definitely a great conversation He's definitely a great, great dude.
0: What, I mean, what kind, if any, of advice or feedback did he give you when you asked him those questions about, like, you know, where, where should I be focused and stuff like that? Did he have anything oh, yeah, for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, quite
1: quite a ton, but I definitely <laughs> keep it short. <laughs> in general, the, the whole messaging from his end was at the end of the day, regardless of what really happens in the process, not only do I continue with all the work, but if I do get selected or I do get into, into BTrust itself. The whole idea should be to really sit down and try and critically think through all possible ways that we could actually further progress the Bitcoin ecosystem. And not necessarily on like, you know, just programs that BTrust does, but looking at the whole landscape and seeing what other people are doing and how they could do it better. And also serving as like a what I say, a template for other folks to do so. Cause again, BTrust is technically one of a kind. So a lot of things that we're doing would require careful planning. So the convos are really, uh, and the advice was really centered around that and really thinking through the process critically, which was very, very helpful.
0: And did you speak to Jay? <laughs> yeah, so we had a
1: wider meeting call with, with Jack, Jay, and the other board members, to and some of the selection team. It was definitely fascinating to hear what his take was on Bitcoin and why he got involved.
0: Can you share it? Oh yeah. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so Jay is definitely he sees the promise with regards to Bitcoin in general, and he sees the value of trying to support this monetary network really, and, and the the benefits that it will bring to average folks. So he's not super technical, but he gets the whole promise, and he's definitely happy to chime in with Jack to really progress this.
0: How did they was did they come together? Because because. Uh square bought title i believe which was jay's streaming music service if i'm not mistaken um is that how they connected the dots on bitcoin and then they just realized that you know this would be a great initiative like what yeah because guessing... jack you get he's a hardcore bitcoiner but what yeah, made jay yeah. be a part of the picture
1: <laughs> i mean i'm guessing jack orange pill jay that's most likely what <laughs> happened throughout the course of their friendship and then that yeah. kind of snowballed into trying to get into as many projects as possible to really help out. So even outside of Bitcoin and um, outside of Bitrust, you know, the Marcy
0: projects and, and all of that, I think that's probably
1: most likely what happened. Mm.
0: You know, this might be actually a a good way to lead into the recursive stuff, but you know, Jack, is, as I said already, he's incredibly successful entrepreneur uh, in the technology industry, but also very much ideologically aligned with what Bitcoin represents and is doing a lot of different things in the space to support the cause effectively. Um, beyond his direct advice when you spoke to him or the times that you've spoke to him, if it's been more than once, uh, one-on-one, have you taken away anything else from those conversations in terms of both your work as an entrepreneur and, or as an investor, like in terms of, you know, attitude and demeanor and, uh, the way he articulates himself, like, was there did you get a vibe from him that you thought was unique that you could help you in in whatever your endeavors might be in the future? Oh yeah,
1: definitely, definitely. I think the primary one would be his humility. Like Jack is crazily humble. Like it's it's really insane. So he gives a very very welcoming, I guess, environment when when you're speaking to him. He allows you to fully express yourself, and it's not like a you know top down conversation. Usually, it's really flat on horizontal in terms of. I guess, how the ideas flow. So he's really, really open to listening and as well as providing very, very helpful feedback. So one thing I've learned in terms of our communication between you know myself and Jack is really to always stay humble and try and critically think about either things people are saying or even ideas that you're proposing yourself. And always be open to being convinced by evidence in terms of switching out what the, what the plan you had in mind or an approach you're thinking about workshopping. So I think that's probably one of the primary ones that still helps today, especially with regards to recursive, because sometimes you get in, read a pitch, you have an idea of what the company is doing and you're like, yeah, this is a hard no. But just having that avenue of, you know, I guess providing, I guess, the benefit of the doubt and then getting on a call and then finding out, oh shit, you know, I had this all wrong. (laughs) Really, I didn't understand what the hell I was reading. So I think that definitely is one of the primary things I've taken away from our interactions.
0: Nice. So how, how did the recursive aspect come about? So you're, you're coding, you're contributing to core, you're, uh, fostering, you know, facilitating education so others can do the same. And then recursive is a Nigeria or Africa focused based VC fund in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So how did, I know you started as a CTO. Now you're the CEO. Congratulations, by the way, because I think that happened maybe (laughs) this year, right? Um, But how did all that come about?
1: Oh, yeah, it was really in 2020 was when we launched. And that was, you know, a lot of back and forth for, I think, two years at that time. So all the way from 2018. And it was fairly straightforward at the time. It was the thinking was, you know, converse with my older bro. He was like, yeah. Know, VC is a good way for us to try and provide value to this space because there are going to be a lot of Bitcoin companies coming out of Africa. And they're gonna be a, there's going to be even more noise in terms of folks that camouflages Bitcoin companies and just generally in the wider space. So how do we try and allocate capital efficiently to try and make sure we provide value or even support products that actually are creating value as opposed to just raising for VC raising and trying to make us profit off of that. So in 2020, we launched. Initially, we called ourselves a Web3 focus fund, thinking we could define it. So the way we defined it was, you know, financial sovereignty, which was strictly through Bitcoin. And then on the other side, we're thinking online sovereignty, you know, so privacy as a right and encryption systems and all of that. And then in 2021 was when we got into our first investment, which was Bitnob. And all this has been, you know, just private holdings from Bitcoin and all of that until earlier this year when we restructured to be like a proper Bitcoin VC. So really the transition from calling ourselves Web3 focused, and then realizing that introduced a lot of really, really garbage pitches from the wider <laughs> space <laughs> and a lot of token sales. And then realizing all we had to do was just call ourselves a Bitcoin VC and reduce all that, even though we still get pitches that are outside of our mandate. but. Looking through all of that, meeting some of the other Bitcoin VCs in the space, especially, you know, in Norway, speaking with, you know, folks like 1031 and all the others, even Ego Death, who's been like really, really good, great team. And some of the other folks, too, that have been in the space for quite a while, like Stillmark, which have been very, very helpful. So for us, it's been now that we are a lot more, I guess, nimble in terms of what the mandate is, we've all stripped down a lot of the ambiguity in terms of just being Bitcoin focused The idea is focusing on the African continent and other emerging markets, but that's kind of what our main focus is. But at the same time, we do recognize that a lot of development happens outside of Africa for Africa or other emerging markets. So you tend to see our portfolio also, I guess, exemplify that sort of mix. So you will likely see a majority of them coming from this continent, but still a lot, some others coming outside of it. So our mandate right now is really to continue to grow the, I guess, the portfolio companies we have right now. We're technically a micro fund, you know, not too big. And for us, really, the next couple of years is not only just trying to chase returns, but trying to ensure that we're really being as careful as possible in what we're supporting, how we're supporting the companies, because we're not just throwing capital. Each investment we have, we come on board. We provide the networks that we do have, the the capacity from our research point of view, in terms of how we could better the the products that they're creating or how they're approaching it. So we're going to be expanding a lot in terms of the full spectrum of infrastructure, all the way from mining to software, second layer solutions, all of that. So for us, it's fairly straightforward in terms of a lot of capital wants to get into Africa and we can be a useful, productive funnel for where that capital should be properly allocated. And at the same time, we hope to inspire obviously other folks, whether it's angels or potentially other VCs to, to follow suite and, Try and emulate some of the structures or models that we have
0: 100 percent. so it, it was started by you and your brother initially yeah you guys founded it cool um first of all man or maybe not first of all but just want to say good for you guys because there are a ton of vcs out there you know the a16z for example that you know throughout this whole quote unquote crypto phenomenon they've been <laughs> so In my opinion, they've, you know, and maybe they think that the thesis is, you know, a thousand flowers will bloom and that's how things are going to pan out. But I have a funny suspicion that it's more the case that they can't turn down a pre-sale token allocation of a billion tokens on whatever blockchain and they know that as soon as it hits the market and it has its initial spike they're going to dump and they've just made an easy hundred mil or something like that. I suspect that's more often the case. And you know, it, that's a, that's a difficult carrot to, to refuse, you know, because that's a lot of money and it's a really easy way to get money and it's, you know, immediate liquidity, you know, so all the, all these people have been salivating and taking advantage for several (laughs) years now. And, um, people like you guys at recursive 1031 ego death, as you mentioned, so much respect for one identifying what i think we both agree is the true th- thesis here and the true you know paradigm shift that's that's playing out in bitcoin only and also having the integrity not to be pulled in those directions simply because you know it's an easy way to make a buck because i'm sure you get a lot of people sending you pitch decks where they're like we'll give you 10 million 100 million tokens <laughs> and you know just you know the whole shit you know it, it it's so scammy you know but again, it's a lot of money and it's easy money. And so I think a lot of credit, um, you guys that focus on Bitcoin and, and don't get pulled into that game deserve a lot of credit. So kudos for that. Um, and I think, you know, as you said, I think there's going to be a ton of interest in investing in Africa, you know, investing in Bitcoin in Africa. And to the extent that you guys can have the reputation, the credibility, and the means to allocate capital in that market. I, I mean, I think it's, you're positioning yourselves extremely well to to serve that function for capital that's trying to find a home in Africa. So what's do you guys make public your port po, you mentioned Bitnob. Is that how you met Bernard? Or did you or did you guys know each other prior to investing in Bitnob? Oh yeah, we we knew him before we invested in Bitnob. <laughs> do you mind if I ask how you guys met? Oh yeah, it's actually it's
1: it's a funny story. So I started speaking with bernard via twitter so it was strictly just you know i tweet some random crap and he replies and vice versa and because it was bitcoin
0: it, or just random? yeah just yeah, totally bitcoin random. yeah like it was okay, all okay. strictly bitcoin stuff
1: and then down gotcha. the line it morphed into dms and you know walking through some technical things because i didn't like i said you know my childhood friends and all of that aren't into bitcoin or anything so all my bitcoin friends are all folks from twitter to be honest <laughs> there was yeah there was really a lot of combos <laughs> like that and funny enough later on he did tell me that he thought i was like uh some 40 year old retired developer that was working on bitcoin and i was like what the hell <laughs> and he was actually also talking with my older bro in parallel but he didn't know we we're brothers until later on before we invested so a lot of the combos are really quite highly technical you know talking about Lightning ETC all the way up to, you know, hey, what are you doing with Bitnob? And then it gradually progressed into downloading Bitnob, getting on calls, finding out more about it, and then investing. And then after we invested, I think, is when we met in person, which tends to be the case with a lot of folks.
0: (laughs) Right. Cool. And um, are you guys public with uh, your portfolio at Recursive?
1: Oh, yeah. So currently is not on our site, but we definitely do aim to make the the portfolio public because again, and, and just to, I guess, provide that point as well, I think I skipped, which was to try and decentralize the the VC capital, globally speaking, because while development is being decentralized, I think is very, very important for capital to also be decentralized. Because again, money is, is at the end of the day, is just a tool. So when it comes to VCs, it tends to be Organizations that have a lot of power when it comes to directions of where the landscape is going or heading. So, for so us, it's if we're decentralizing and we're making sure that the interests of this continent, frankly, is always kept, and we're ensuring that we're pushing it to a point where folks are getting the best solutions that are built by folks that really care about solving problems. So, in general, we do want to make the portfolio um, public. We'll definitely be announcing a few more stuff. Down the line, throughout the year, in terms of our portfolio, but yeah, we definitely have you know Bitnob, Fetty, I'm looking at quite a couple of others too. And obviously, if there are any angels watching or other folks that want to get interested or or are sort of interested in the landscape, they can definitely reach out to us. I'm fairly active on Twitter. I do LinkedIn too for the professional crowd. <laughs> and emails <laughs> are contact at recursive is always open too.
0: Um, and what was the motivation behind assuming the CEO role earlier this year? oh yeah so really
1: when I got in it was mostly a lot of paperwork on my end like drafting articles trying to do like I guess structuring internally of what the future holds and then the CTO role was really just calling out the bullshit really that was kind of what the core <laughs> mandate was on my end so it was really looking at all the proposals and seeing does this even make any sense talkless of if there's a market product fit or a product fit or anything like that and then the CEO role really is because at the end they were recursive all the other folks aren't necessarily full-time like mm-hmm. even my older bro he went the full government route so it's not like he's actively involved with the fund and you know we're fortunate enough to have you know a few others like you know um, our venture partner that we have like Ramadan and you know our research associate Kevon has been quite tremendous as well because he already has VC background. So for us, it was how do we really structure cursive in a way that we're able to position ourselves to adequately take advantage of the opportunity like you highlighted of being, number one, the first Bitcoin VC here and also ensuring that we're a proper conduit as well as like a proper voice in the space for real impact. So it was fairly, I guess the conversations for us internally were Just like a role expansion for me. So it was really the majority of the time prior to getting the promotion was trying to ease into more of a managerial role. So, really structuring the internal team, ensuring we have proper structures to really graduate into a proper VC fund and not just like, you know, a bunch of guys with an idea. Right. So, post CEO role, I guess it's been continuing that job and continuing to still hold the CTO role as well as really guide and lead recursive.
0: How do you prioritize your time? You're involved in a bunch of stuff. I mean, how do you delegate, you know, determine which ones are most deserving of your limited time?
1: Oh yeah. So it's a couple of things. So first and foremost, um, calendars really, really help anything I say I want to do or like any meetings, like if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist in my head. I've (laughs) learned that the hard way. (laughs) But another thing is structuring, um, like even when it comes to meetings with uh, trust or Gala or Recursive, so structuring it throughout the week in such a way that I'm able to mentally track everything I'm doing. So in the weekends, is strictly all recursive work in terms of touching base with the team. And throughout the week, there's an opportunity for a gala as well as trust. And then, you know, my Mondays all the way to Wednesdays are usually just working on Bitcoin Core or if I have any meetings on any of the other roles, I do that. And then towards the end of the week, it's really dedicated to research mostly and any other projects I'm working on or stuff I'm involved with. So for me, it's patching out um, and like stringing a very concise way to flow all the way from, you know, the code side all the way to management and all the other stuff I do. So it's really, it's been a working progress. I, I guess a work in progress in general, but the current model that I have that has been working good has been the structure.
0: Nice. Um, this is a bit of a maybe weird question or a difficult one to answer, <laughs> but, you know, we already went in how you got into this space, right? You had other plans and then the you, you just, you know, you got curious about it and the rest yeah. is history. You know, we've explored it. But do you ever... And, you know, we all, as we go through life, you know, we act and we do things, and we devote ourselves uh, to certain things. And then of course we get feedback, whether it's financial feedback, right. reputational, social, et cetera. And that helps us to dictate like if we're on the right track, if we're on the wrong, and the feedback is also internal, right? Do I like this? Is this fulfilling? Is this enjoyable? Um, you know, you're pretty young. 23 years old is, you know, by most <laughs> accounts, pretty young and, you know, You're on calls with Jay and Jack Dorsey. You've, you've been given the responsibility to allocate capital for the growth of, of this ecosystem in Africa. You're allocating capital for LPs and, and trying to, you know, fund the development of important companies in the space. You're contributing to the protocol itself, which is, you know, as many of us hardcore Bitcoiners believe, you know, as we said earlier, there's few things happening in the world that are more important than the success and development of Bitcoin you know, so you've been, you've been met with a lot of success in a very short period of time and I'm broadly success, right? I, I, I never define success just purely financially, but just like more than anything, life satisfaction, doing things that bring you meaning and fulfillment. And, you know, so do you ever reflect on, on how weird it is that like, you know, three (laughs) or four years ago, you just decided to start tinkering in this code. And now here you are, you know, talking to these, you know, famous people and doing this work that, you know, you're so passionate about
1: oh yeah definitely i mean it's also a point of motivation for me just reflection in general i do tend to take out time from time to time (laughs) to actually reflect on how the journey has been so far and especially what i've learned so far and a lot of things have i guess come to light to me in in a variety of, of ways so specifically like it's been both incredible but at the same time it's been more of a realization of what the responsibilities entail as I keep transitioning into different roles or different capacities. And for me, it's been a constant reminder to continue to stay humble because at the end of the day, everyone starts from somewhere. And the moment you let all this short-term success or however you want to define it get to your head, then you've totally lost out. Because I've seen quite a lot of folks that have had even larger meteoric, I guess, successes or like stories in, in the space. And then they end up either shit coining, selling out or getting too greedy and all of that. So for me, it's always trying to stay grounded and ensuring that the folks that I keep around or I try to interact as much as possible with reflect that, so to speak. So, I tend to really engage a lot with people that I feel are more like folks that have a lot of these principles in mind of humility, trying to help out folks. Because at the end of the day, it's still a journey. Like I'm still a human being. So it's, it's going to be a lot of mistakes. There are going to be mm. times where you, know, you second guess what you're doing. Is this too much? Is this too little? So for me, it's definitely constant reflection and constantly reiterating what I'm trying to do and ensuring that I'm not just doing this because I think I'm right or because I think it feels good. So yeah, it's definitely constantly seeking feedback from folks that have been doing this for a while learning from their journey and trying to also do the same for folks that are just trying to get started as well because i believe it's like both ways trying to both develop myself as well as others trying to get in as well
0: yeah that was going to be you know my next question and it may be very similar but you're mentoring effectively a lot of other people that are on a similar path that you were and are on you know in all the different initiatives you're involved in what what advice do you give them as they kind of embark on this and they're looking to create a life, you know, a, the life that they want on this path? Do you give them any particular advice? Oh yeah. yeah. Always, always, it,
1: it tends to be around just working hard and ensuring that you are putting your best at all levels, like it doesn't matter at what stage you're at, you could be doing like something you think is totally unnecessary or like inconsequential, but just having that work ethic always helps out down the line because that's the that's the winning mentality, so to speak, because then it means once you've built up that character, no matter where you find yourself, you're able to excel to the next stage that you want to go to. Another thing I tell them is to constantly keep learning. And another thing is obviously, especially with the devs, especially even with the cohort members that we previously just had or recently just had, is just trying to remind them that a lot of folks will be interested in them they'll be looking for them either on podcasts and other stuff and it's very 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 important to manage their bandwidth because it's just the beginning of the journey it's not necessarily the end as soon as you get out of gala or move to a next stage so with life in general i just try to let them know that it's okay to make the mistakes that you you're eventually going to make you're human but at the same time the most important thing is to learn from that another thing obviously is just to stay humble really and then continue to really try and better yourself at each stage. Don't ever get complacent at all. That is just the beginning of failure.
0: Beautiful advice, man. I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, unless you had anything else you wanted to, to cover or get off, off your chest before we shut it down. Oh, well, I would just probably close with this, which is obviously, you know,
1: Matt Odell's quote that I always enjoy, just is <laughs> access and stay humble. But then more generally on, And with, I guess, advice in general for other folks or anyone just listening, it's, you know, growing up, there was this quote from one of the school administrators when I was in high school. And the idea is basically there are two pains in life, you know, the pain of regret and the pain of discipline. And really knowing those two pains is the first step. The second step is making peace with one of each or one of them. So if you're going down the path of just, you know, the pain of regret, the idea there is wasting your time not sufficiently doing things to get yourself to the next level and then dealing with that whole pain throughout your life. Or you can make enough sacrifices, aka not trading shit coins and just buying and hodling long term. And then you're stuck with the pain of discipline, which is temporary as opposed to the pain of regret, which is lifelong lasting.
0: That's awesome, man. I love that. And, uh, and as you said, the, the eternal wisdom of Matt O'Dell, stay humble, stack sats. It always kind of comes back to that, (laughs) um, man, this was so great. It was awesome to meet you in, uh, in Norway and I appreciate the time today and, uh, I can't wait till we do it again. Hopefully in person next time.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely thoroughly enjoyed the combo. All
0: right, brother. Take care. Thanks. See ya. You all enjoyed this discussion with Abu Bakar. If you'd like to hear more from him, follow him on Twitter at i hate 1999, and visit kala.dev/rcrsv.xyz for Recursive Capital and B Trust Team on GitHub to learn more about all the great work he's doing. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.